John chapter 15, verses 1 to 17. Hear the word of the Lord. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It's often useful to illustrate concepts with some sort of an event or an activity in our daily lives, and we all have that for this passage today, because there is a main verb that we will see repeated in this text, and it's something that we are all trying to practice now. It is the word abide, or remain, or continue, or dwell, or stay. And we are receiving that message over and over and over. What are we being told? Stay put. Remain where you are. Don't go anywhere. Abide in your house. Continue there. That's what the authorities are telling us to do to try to help stop this epidemic or this pandemic. Now, therefore, we have an illustration of what this text is all about, because that's what the text tells us to do. It tells us to stay put. It tells us to remain where we are. It tells us to continue. It tells us to dwell, to abide. And we can break it up into a couple sections. Uh, The first eight verses tell us to abide in Jesus. And then the last verses tell us something very similar. Abide in Jesus' love. So abide in Jesus and abide in Jesus' love. Now, the major illustration that Jesus uses to uh, teach us about abiding or remaining is this image of the vine, the vine dresser, 
the branches of the vine and the fruit that those branches produce. And he spells this out. This is the last of his I am sayings in uh, the Gospel of John. And this one, of course, has a predicate. Some of them stand alone. He just says, I am. And he doesn't say, I am what? He simply says, I am, which is a reflection of the divine name in the Old Testament. But other times it has a predicate. And we have a predicate here. I am the vine. But he doesn't say just the vine. I am the true vine. And then he adds, and my father is the vine dresser. Now we already read earlier in the service from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7, it's the song of the vineyard. And there we see very clearly identified, but not only there, there are other places in the Old Testament where the people of God, where Israel is identified as the vine or as the vineyard of God. But there is repeatedly a problem with that vineyard in the Old Testament. That is, it doesn't do what a vineyard should do. And what is the basic thing a vineyard or a vine should do? It should produce what? Grapes. And repeatedly in the prophets, God goes to his people and he says, you're the vineyard. I've done everything I can so that you will be productive. But when I look, I don't find fruit or I find the wrong kind of fruit. Like in Isaiah, it says, I find wild grapes, not cultivated grapes, even though I have cultivated my vineyard. And that's the contrast we have here. What is Jesus saying? He says, do you want to see the real people of God? Do you want to see the fruitful people of God? Do you want to see the true Israel, the true vine? He says, I am that true vine. I am the fulfillment of what Israel was supposed to be. Jesus is the faithful Israel. Jesus is the fruitful Israel. And he identifies himself by, with this image. But then he spells it out. He says, my father's the vine dresser. And the vine dresser does one of two things. By the way, he doesn't spell it out, but it's pretty obvious who the branches are. He, well, actually, he says that later. He says, you are the branches. He says to the disciples, so followers of Jesus are the branches. You are the branches. But then the vine dresser does one of two things with the branches. There are two kinds of branches. And in accordance with what kind of branch... The vine dresser, the father, does one of two things. In verse 2, it says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So two types of branches. Branches that get cut off completely, and branches that are pruned. They remain on the vine, but they're pruned. So none of the branches get left alone by the vine dresser. None of the the branches are left to do their own thing. The branches are either taken away or the branches are pruned. They are cut back so that they will produce more fruit. Now, he says that the branches that are cut off, he says they're thrown away in verse 6 and they are burned up in the fire. But the other branches that are left and are pruned, they produce much fruit. And here is where the the image of abiding comes in. Now, here he doesn't identify what the fruit is. But if we look at other parts of the New Testament, we can figure out what the fruit is. And there are a number of different places in the New Testament where it teaches us that the fruit is one of two things. And I don't think we have to decide between those two things. One of the things that we find represented by fruit in the New Testament is Christian character, godly characteristics. And of course, you can, you can look at a number of verses, uh, Luke chapter 6, where Jesus talks about, you will know them by their 
fruit. You will know them by their characteristics. You could also think of, of course, Galatians 5.22 and 23. The what of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the fruit that God is looking for in His vine, in His vineyard. But there's another way that the word fruit is used in the New Testament. And that is the positive results of evangelization. That is the positive results of getting the gospel out. And what are those positive results? That people come to faith in Jesus. Uh, You could think about, for example, Colossians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Let me read that. Where Paul says, and he's describing his ministry and the ministry of the gospel going out, And it says, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and is increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So the idea of fruit here is the gospel going out and people believing the gospel. We may have a hint of that in in our text here in John chapter 15. Look at verse 16, where he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should do what? You should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. Now, that go reminds us of another command that Jesus gave us, right? In going and making disciples of all the nations. So there may be a hint here that he's talking about these two types of fruit, that we have to go to produce one of these types of fruit. We need to get the gospel out. So that's the fruit. Now the image of the vine emphasizes that there is one way, and one way only, to bear the fruit of godly characteristics, and to bear the fruit of God using us to bring people to Jesus. And that is by remaining in Jesus. He says in verse 3, Already you are clean. We've heard this before when he talked to the disciples, when he washed their feet, and he talked about them being cleansed, except one of them, uh, Judas, was not. But he said the rest of them were clean. And he says, Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Then he says, Having been cleansed. That's a once-for-all thing, and it's a continual thing as well, as we go to God and, and confess our sins. But having been cleansed and being cleansed, then he says, what should we do? Abide in me. And then he says, and I in you. Now, in the text last week, we already saw the I in you part, didn't we? We saw that the Holy Spirit dwells in His people. We saw that Jesus and the Father dwell in His people, but now He emphasizes the other aspect of that. Abide in Me. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in Me. This is the image. The branch, in order to produce fruit, must remain where? On the vine. Connected to the vine. If it's separated from the vine, what happens? It withers up, it dies, it does not bear fruit. This is the only way to bear fruit, to abide. Now, this word abide appears 11 times in this text today. And it also appears throughout this whole section of this discourse, this farewell discourse of Jesus. But you probably don't recognize it as the same word. Sometimes it's a noun, sometimes it's a verb, but the same same root. 
because it's translated a number of different ways. But it's it shot through this whole section. Let me give you some of those. Back in chapter four, uh, four, I'm sorry, 14, verse two, Jesus said, "I am going to prepare rooms for you, abodes for you." There's the noun version of that word. Uh, chapter 14, verse 17, the Holy Spirit dwells with us. That's the same word. Uh, chapter 14, verse 23, the Father and the Son, Jesus, dwell. They make their home with us, their abode with us. Uh, our remaining in Jesus as the branch remains in the vine. We see that here, chapter 15, verse 4, three times. Chapter 15, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7. Jesus, uh, Jesus' word remaining in us also. That's the same word. It abides in us. It dwells in us. Our remaining in Jesus' love, verse 9, verse 10, and our producing fruit that remains. This is all the same word here. So we have God dwelling in us. We have us dwelling in Jesus. We have us dwelling in His love. We have His word remaining in us. We produce fruit that remains, that abides, that dwells. All the same words. Now, this this could sound rather kind of ethereal and mystical. How does this happen? How do we remain in Jesus? If we are in Him, and we know that the only way to be in Him is to believe in Him, we believe, by the way, the, the preposition that's often used in the New Testament when it says believe in Jesus, it's our prep, it would be more like our preposition into. Believe into Jesus. How are you going to be in Jesus? By believing into Jesus. That's how you get in that, that vital union with Him, by believing into Jesus. But having believed into Jesus, you are in Jesus. But how do you remain in Jesus? Look at, look at verse 7. It says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This gets very, very practical here. Because as I say, this could sound mystical, but actually it's very practical. What's the counterpart of our abiding in Jesus? It's having His words abiding in us. And can we do practical things? To have Jesus' words abiding in us? Absolutely. Of course we can. And we have a great advantage over Christians of of most of Christian history. We have the Word of God collected into one book that we can have ourselves and on our our, our electronic apparatus as well. We, We have access to it. And so that's one of the ways that we abide in Jesus, by having His Word abide in us. But also in that same verse, He says, ask. What's He talking about there? He's talking about prayer. And so we have two basic practices of the Christian life, and these are practical things that we can do to abide in Jesus, to be in His Word constantly, and to be praying as well, asking whatever you wish. Now, this is one of those words. He says this. He says this a number of times here. He throws open the gates and says, ask whatever you wish, and we need to be careful not to take this out of context, because He's saying, ask whatever you wish as you're abiding in me and as my words are abiding in you. He's not talking about anything whatsoever. He's talking about what's in accordance with his word. 
And He says, I will do those things for you. You want, you want more of the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Be in His Word and, and uh, be praying and asking that you would have more love and joy and peace and patience and self-control and so on. He will answer that. He will give those to you as He has promised to do. Now, this is abiding in Jesus, and the purpose of abiding in Jesus is to produce fruit, but fruit is not the end game here. The end game is not that we produce fruit. There is a greater purpose, and that's in verse 8. He says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. What's the end game here? The end game is the glory of God. That's what we're going for. That's what Jesus was going for. And that's what we are going for. And that is our purpose. I mentioned the Shorter Catechism last week, uh, talking about uh, living in peace. But the Shorter Catechism, as I mentioned, starts with this question, Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is man's primary purpose? That's the newer version of it. And the answer is man's primary purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy Him Forever. That's why we are here. So abiding in Jesus, having His Word abide in us, praying for the things accordance with His Word, we are able to produce fruit, and by that fruit of godly characteristics and of bringing people to Jesus, we glorify God and thus fulfill our reason for existing. Now, um, what's the purpose of the vine? Does the vine have any purpose whatsoever but to bear fruit? It doesn't. What's the purpose of the Christian? The purpose of the Christian is to bear fruit unto the glory of God. And I want you to see that this is not an optional thing. It's not like this is a, a, a choice. Uh, you can choose to be an unfruitful Christian or you can choose to be a fruitful Christian. That's not what this image is allowing us. Because it's saying that if you are an unfruitful Christian, that you're going to be cut off and cast aside. And the worst worst punishments mentioned in the Gospel of John are for this category of persons. Those who call themselves Christians, but do not produce fruit. They're the ones who are cut off. They're the ones who are thrown away. They're the ones who are thrown into the fire and burned. And so this is not an optional sort of thing. Well, I think I'll be, a, I think I'll be an unfruitful Christian. I'll keep calling myself a Christian, but, but not producing the fruit of, of growing Christian character or, or not producing the fruit of reaching out with the Gospel to bring others to Christ. That's not an option that this, this, this image of the vine allows to us. It is the way we show that we are Christians. If you look at verse 8, by this my Father is glorified, that you, may, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Now, we're getting very practical here. All through the Gospel of John, we have had this tension, haven't we? This tension of people believing, but maybe not really believing, or believing, but keeping their faith hidden so that they wouldn't have problems with others. And are they really believing or not? There is this this question all through the Gospel of John. Now the question is it's answered very clearly. This is how you show whether your faith is real or not. By producing the fruit that God has designed for you to produce. That's the, that's the first section. And the, the second section is really a, an explanation of the first section. 
it, it tends to drop the vine image and just explain it uh, more, more straightforwardly. Uh, but in verse 9, Jesus picks up themes that He's already mentioned in His discourse. As the Father has loved Me, so I have loved you. And here He says, Abide in My love. And then as we saw, was it last week or the week before, if you keep My commandments, you will abide in My love. This is... This is not uh, impractical. This is not mystical. This is very, very practical. We have the Word of God. We have prayer. We have His commandments. We have the Holy Spirit who enables us to keep those commandments. And He says, those are the kind of things you do to abide in Me, to abide in My love. And He says, he says I'm not telling you to do something that is different from what I already have done myself. Look at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in His love. Interesting that the Son is saying that He abides in the Father's love by keeping His Father's commandments. And He's saying, now you do the same thing. I glorify my Father by keeping His commandments. You glorify me by keeping my commandments. I abide in my Father's love by keeping His commandments. You abide in my love by keeping my commandments. And then I want you to see this transition. This explanation, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Now, he says that because, probably, because we tend to confuse things. We tend to think, well, there are two things that we can't have at the same time. We can either... We can either obey God's commands and be unhappy, or we can do our thing and be happy. But he puts these two things together. And he says, the reason I'm telling you to abide in me, to abide in my love, to to keep my commandments, to be in my word, to call it to me in prayer, the reason I'm telling you this is so that my joy may be in you. Do you remember last week what he gave us? He gave us his peace. And now he's saying, not only do I want you to have my peace, I want you to have my joy. So this is not a dichotomy. Either we walk in God's commands or we're joyful. On the contrary, when we walk in God's commands, we encounter true joy. And he's saying, that's what I want for you. John Piper has made a whole ministry out of this one simple idea. And we find these two ideas in in this text. God is most glorified when we are most joyful in Him. God gets the glory, we get the joy. That's a good deal for us, folks. And Jesus says, that's what I want for you. That you would bear fruit, that you would glorify God precisely so that you are the ones who get the joy. Now, um, he goes on and he repeats something he's already told us. He's summarized. He talks about his commandments, plural, and then he reduces it to one commandment. We saw that already in chapter 13, verse 34. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. He already said that. Nothing new here. But the new thing here, and by the way, go back and look at that verse. We realize that he's ramping it up. The Old Testament says, uh, love uh, love one another as you love yourself, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And now he ramps it up to love each other as I have loved you. But here he doesn't leave in any doubt how he has loved us. Because he says, what is that greatest love? Verse 13, 
greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So he says, this is the way I've loved you, and this is the way I'm commanding you to love each other. He says, this is the top. This is the maximum. This is the greatest kind of love that there is to lay down one's life for others. It's not only in the Christian faith where we recognize that. Widely in the world, in literature, in poetry, in songs, in films, they tend to have the Christ figure. And what does the Christ figure do? He or she is the hero who does what? Sacrifices himself or sacrifices herself for others. That's widely recognized as the greatest kind of love that a a human being could have. And Jesus says, that's what I'm doing for you. I'm laying down my life for you. We're finding all sorts of news. A lot of it is depressing these days about the growth of the virus and and the sick and the dying and and so on and the lack of supplies and the hoarding and and great selfishness. But we're always also finding some heartwarming stories, aren't we? And those heartwarming stories, the one that get to us most, are the stories of people sacrificing themselves for others. Why? Because that's the greatest expression of human love. The governor of, of New York sent a call out to retired health professionals asking if they would consider coming out of retirement to meet the the crush of need that they have in the state of New York. And 52,000 of them replied to that summons. Uh, Many of these were probably comfortably ensconced in their retirement And many of these also would be those who are in the most vulnerable categories if they're older. But what are they doing? They're answering the call, although it may mean to lay down their lives in favor of others. Why does that move us? Why does that get to us? Because that's a picture of the gospel. That's the picture of what what Jesus has done for us. And and this word that he says, we've looked at this before, but he says that lay down your life for, that, that, that preposition for is ambiguous. It could simply mean in favor of or as a benefit to, and it certainly means at least that, but it's stronger than that. It means in place of, instead of. So Jesus is not just talking about laying down his life as a, as a general favor. He's talking about laying down his life in place of his people so that his people's lives are spared. That's the essence of the good news. That's what Jesus has done for those who are his. And notice how he calls those who are his. He says, greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. By the way, there's some people that criticize this and say, that's not true. Laying down your life for your enemy is greater than that. Well, two responses to that. He did that. Look at Romans chapter 5. He did lay his life down for his enemies. And he's among friends here. He's not talking about what to do with friends and what to do with enemies. He's talking what what is the greatest thing you can do for your friends because he's among friends. And the greatest thing you can do is to lay down your life. And he says, I call you my friends. And this is a change. 
This is a, an elevation of the status of, of Jesus' people. He says, I call you my friends. Now, it's interesting, though, that this is just not a, an equal buddy-buddy relationship. Look what he says. You are my friends if you do what I command you. That's not a normal thing among friends, is it? So he's not sacrificing any of his authority here. He's not placing them on his level. But he is giving them something that only friends, or not only, but especially friends share. And that is an intimacy, a knowledge of what's happening. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. That's characteristic of friendship, isn't it? Letting each other in on what's going on in our lives. And he says, I call you friends now. Because I have let you in on everything. All that the Father has given to me, I have given to you as well. Now, he reminds them that he took the initiative. And we saw that last week. We always need to remind ourselves of this. That he takes the initiative with us. We love. Why? Because he first loved us. And he says to us, to them, to us, to all who are his own, you did not choose me. Now, The normal thing in those days, and we do this to some degree as well, we choose our teachers. We look for the best teachers and we attach ourselves to those teachers. We want to learn from so-and-so. And that's how it was in these days. If there was a master and disciples, the disciples would come and they would choose the teacher and ask to be a follower of of that teacher. But Jesus says, that's not how it worked here. He says, I chose you. I took the initiative here. I chose you and I chose you And appointed you, why? Here's the purpose, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. And then he gets back to, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Asking in Jesus' name, according to Jesus' word, asking the Father that he would give it to us. And then he sums up, repeating the command, these things I command you, that you will love one another. Now, the instructions from our authorities are pretty clear, aren't they? But we have had some confusion, at least in this state, maybe in other states. How does the the county instruction relate to the city instruction? And then the state, rather uh, late, came out with their own instructions. But they're all saying basically the same thing. What are they saying? Stay where you are. But there are exceptions to this command to stay where you are, this order. They're the essential services. Uh, Churches are allowed to meet like this with a few people spread out and live stream. There's some exceptions. Jesus' command is very, very clear, and it admits of no exceptions whatsoever. If you are going to bear fruit, you need to, no exception. You need to abide in Him and in His love. And if you abide in Him, you produce fruit. That fruit glorifies the Father and you get Jesus' joy. That's how it works. That's the, that's the rule of the vineyard, let's say. That's how fruit operates. So what's the takeaway? Well, if you are not in Jesus, by faith, then believe in Jesus. Believe into Jesus. 
Why believe into Jesus? Because He's the one, God, who became one of us and laid down His life for His people. Why did His people need for Him to lay down His life for us? Because we had gone astray. We were like Israel of old. We were, we were the unproductive ones. We were the ones that didn't produce the righteousness that He called for. But Jesus, the true vine, the righteous vine, He's the one who gave His life for His people. So believe into Him that you might be in Jesus. And if you already find yourself this morning in Jesus, by faith, in His love, having come to faith in Jesus because He laid down His life for you, then the message is very, very clear and simple. Stay where you are. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for the greatest of all loves, for Jesus who laid down His life for His people. And we count ourselves among His people, those of us who have faith in Him. And we pray that it would be evident that we have faith in Him by the fruit in our lives. Two kinds of fruit. The fruit of of godly characteristics. The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of repentance. The fruit of righteousness. And also that our lives would be fruitful in the multiplication of Your kingdom. Of people coming to Jesus through our words and through our lives. Oh God, I pray that You would enable us always to stay where we are if we are in Jesus, so that we might produce much fruit, glorify our Father, and have Jesus' joy in us. And we pray this in His name. Amen. Would you stand for one more good word from God? May the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all, now and forevermore. Amen.